Well, I think what started as like delving into the supply chains really ended up just being kind of a history lesson for me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I just like went down a lot of little rabbit holes. I had no idea how those supply chains had like changed so much in the last 20 years. That was super interesting. This is Song. And this is Sarah. This is Effing Ethical, where we try to make sense of all the choices facing consumers every day. Okay. Maybe we can like start with acid because I feel like it's a lot more just fun and lighthearted than the other numbers. <laughs> yeah. Um, it turns out opioids and, and, and cocaine, there's like nothing lighthearted about it. <laughs> although there have been some like really interesting tidbits where I was just like shaking my head like, oh yeah, classic capitalists or like... <laughs> <laughs> just like an introduction to this episode um shout out and thank you to leeway for giving us the suggestion to look into drug supply chains so fascinating and turns out it's like really just intertwined with global affairs and criminalization and you know there's just like so much that's intertwined with all of the things that we talk about in our podcast So when we first started brainstorming about this episode, the first one that popped into my mind was acid for a number of reasons. And the moment I typed in acid supply chains, the first thing that popped up was like a Reddit chain. And, you know, I did end up going down some Reddit rabbit holes. I mean, there's a lot of kind of like lore around it. And it's actually really interesting if anybody's interested in like doing that deep dive themselves. So LSD was first created in 1938 by Sandoz Lab in Switzerland, which is now Novartis, the big pharma giant. And it was meant to be a respiratory and circulatory stimulant. And then it wasn't until the guy who invented it, his name's Albert Hoffman, until he like accidentally ingested it a few years later that he discovered its psychedelic properties. And when he accidentally ingested it and he started becoming, you know, introspective and like, you know, hallucinating and all of these things, he predicted that the drug would be used as a psychiatric tool. So there's like a ton of research on it in the 50s and, and 60s. And, you know, there's a lot of research around it for like psychotherapy. It's been found to be efficacious for curing alcoholism, enhancing creativity, and then in the mid-1960s, LSU is made illegal to manufacture, sell, or possess because of, quote-unquote, its perceived corrosive effects on the values of the Western middle class, whatever that means. <laughs> and so the chemical precursors that go into making LSD, they were also placed under tight surveillance and government funding for LSD research was was eliminated. And I just like thought it was so interesting because apparently, again, the person who discovered LSD like didn't foresee this to be some sort of like a recreational drug. Um, but the early days of it being used recreationally was mostly by medical professionals and academics. And then it sort of expanded into this like subculture um, with like spiritual gurus and psychedelic rock. And a lot of like cool music that came out during that time either like references it or later came out that bands were under the influence when they wrote these songs. And yeah, kind of like interesting historical content around around the history of acid. 
In terms of supply chains, so it started in Switzerland and then it made its way into the US and then it started spreading to other places in the world like Australia, possibly through American servicemen who were visiting Australia during the Vietnam War. And the last country to produce it legally was Czechoslovakia in the 1960s. And that's where it was made legally because by that time it was illegal in the U.S. And then it was exported to California. So all kinds of interesting history. There's this one super major lab, um, this guy named William Picard. He was an academic. He studied drug abuse in the former Soviet Union at Harvard Kennedy School. And he was like the deputy director of UCLA's drug policy research program. Um, so when he was arrested, the lab was producing a kilogram of LSD every five weeks. And a kilo of LSD, apparently it's about 10 million doses. So think about how much was coming oh, out wow. of this lab. Um, which was the equivalent to about $40 million on the street and about $3 million wholesale. This guy was responsible for the majority of the acid that was being sold in the U.S. Crazy. The last piece of it that I, I wanted to mention in terms of supply chain is distribution. So manufacturing, this dude's lab, and then another sort of major player in was Owsley, who was, he made like really good quality LSD and he was a, uh, I don't know if he was like a manager, but the money that he made from acid, he would like use to bankroll Grateful Dead concerts. And there was like this network of distribution that always happened around the Grateful Dead concerts. And, and that was sort of another kind of major point of distribution. It was a fun foray into the supply chain of the drug. Interesting. So I just, because um, I was curious, I've never looked this up, but I was curious what the chemical that's in LSD, like where does it come from? And it's found in basically a fungus that grows on rye and like other grains. And so it's interesting that it's like a drug that can be produced in a lab in the US, right? There's no, when you're looking at supply chain, you're literally just looking at like, where are they making it? There's like not this like other global supply chain, which is the case for like most of the other drugs that we're going to talk about. And I guess one that neither of us really, really prepped, but we'll probably talk about it next week when we focus a little bit more on like the US consumer side, um, but is mushrooms, which is like the same thing. Yeah. Like you can grow them in a lab in the US and they've been I guess, decriminalized in at least Denver, um, Colorado. I don't know about any other areas, but it's, yeah, it's something that you can just like grow here. You don't need to worry about some like long supply chain and like who's involved and like where it's coming from. Right. So I guess talking about that supply chain, that really does show what a difference LSD and mushrooms are from cocaine and heroin, um, yeah. heroin being just basically all, all opioids outside of the legal ones that you get from your doctor. And I know we both looked at that. Shall we, shall we start with cocaine? That's the one I dug into the most because like we just hear mm -hmm. on the opioid side, you hear about it as like a prescription drug problem, yeah. but we've sort of been hearing about cocaine and its connection to, you know, like the quote Mexico drug wars for 
a really long time now. So I thought that when you look at supply chain there, it's super interesting where it's grown, where the value comes from, how it's moved, all that kind of thing. So I, I did not do like a long history. Um, if, if anyone's interested, they can. It's been grown in the sort of north part of South America for a very long time. Indigenous populations like would chew on the leaves um, for like a lot of different purposes. So you know, we'll, we'll probably link to an article or two about that um, in the notes. But, but what's interesting really more is to us today is like, how are we as consumers accessing it and kind of like what's going on? So it's grown in Colombia, Bolivia, and Peru by small holder farmers, basically. I mean, I'm sure there's larger farmers as well, but it, there's not like big commercial, as you can imagine, farms. It's like individual farmers who, when given the option of growing produce, fruit, coffee, a lot of them have stuck with growing coca because it's a really good cash crop. There's always been a market for it. Um, it grows really well. There's actually this really good NPR article from 2018 where they talk to an individual farmer, kind of like why he does it. And he really just said it's a reliable income source um, and really like the best option for, for a cash crop. And this is mostly, most of the information is in Colombia. It was kind of the biggest producer as well as the country that has addressed it and sort of tried to cut down on how much is being produced the most. And that history has been pretty fraught. So before 2015, they were actually using aerial spraying to attack coca plants. Um, so they would like, you know, fly over wherever they would see coca being grown. They would like spray it with some chemical, like a weed killer that would, that would kill it. And so there's kind of, there's like a couple problems with that. One, aerial spraying of agrochemicals is just like a bad idea. <laughs> like it's, it might be efficient in, in one term, but you end up with a ton of pollution. You end up with kind of overspraying. So you're like spraying neighboring crops, which might be fruit or like other necessary food crops. And like I mentioned, these are grown by smallholder farmers and like that's their entire income is in growing coca. So when you're looking at like where along the supply chain are you going to address this? There is this history of, well, we'll just stop it from being produced and try somewhat successfully and in other cases not so successfully to give those farmers other crops. And that's been, of again, of mixed success. Um, I think coffee is probably the best replacement as far as like a decent cash crop, but you know, I, I think we we talked about how everybody's talking about the supply chain in coffee, and we probably will at some point too, because it is it is kind of an interesting point um, in 2020 where it got really cheap, um, and now there's a lot of environmental factors that are kind of decreasing the the coffee supply. So, so anyways, it's grown by farmers in the northern part of South America. And it's largely managed in Colombia by like Colombian cartels. The other sort of historical interesting thing is like the Colombian cartels used to be very strong and like largely managed the whole process. But it turns out Mexican cartels who started in supplying marijuana to the U.S. when it became illegal, they 
basically just had better networks. Like they worked better, they're better at getting it into the US. And so they've become a more powerful player in moving cocaine into the US than Colombian cartels, um, which I thought was really interesting. And, and I don't know how up to date this is, but when you look at like the value, so and I mean, this could be, I think that this is, this is old, but um, just sort of the comparison is interesting. So a kilo of cocaine coming off of a farmer's land is about 2000 US dollars in Colombia. When it leaves Colombia, it may have been transported by someone. It's worth somewhere between two and $5,000. It makes it into Mexico and it's worth about $12,000. When it crosses the border into the US, it's worth about 16000 And if it gets all the way up to New York City, it's worth $27,000. So it starts in Columbia at 2000 ends up in New York City at 27000 which I thought was really interesting. The other piece connected to the farmers that are actually growing it is that, for the most part, the first step in processing is actually done by farmers. So kind of very, again, very similar to coffee, which I think is probably why those are good replacements. Um, Both coffee and chocolate require a little bit of processing by the farmers. Coca similarly requires adding gasoline or other chemicals. Um, So there's definitely a worker health (laughs) issue uh, for farmers that actually do the first step of processing. So I thought that was really interesting. And then just sort of confirmed the way it gets into Europe is largely through Africa. So both through West Africa and through South Africa, there are air routes, land, well, obviously there's not land routes across the ocean, but there are both by air, land, and shipping does cocaine get into Europe largely through West Africa, largely starting through Nigeria, which I thought was really interesting. So again, we, I, I tried to find like as many articles as I could, and I've got a good, a good map that shows kind of where mm-hmm. each of those connecting points are. Yeah, I had no idea, like when you first mentioned about the cocaine that goes into Europe, I mean, it seems like such a long route, but it just goes to show how like globally connected every industry is. I also wanted to kind of follow up on your point about that difference between what low of coca leaves with the shareholder farmers what that's worth as opposed to like what a kilo of cocaine is worth at the end user in New York City or something like that. Bringing it to present day because of COVID, the demand for the coca leaves like has plummeted because supply chains have been disrupted, right? Like et cetera, et cetera. And so over 200,000 families in those three countries, Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia, who depend on growing the coca leaf have been like severely impacted and their livelihoods have been taken away. And because of the lockdown, because of COVID, these shareholder farmers, they're not able to not only not sell their products, but government aid isn't able to reach those who are in the most rural areas. For a lot of reasons, they've been totally devastated by the pandemic. It's interesting also because parts of there's been a ton of a ton of like political turmoil. So in 2019, there was like a U.S. approved coup, basically that like turned the country upside down, ousted uh, Evo Morales, who actually himself was a former coca grower and the country's first indigenous president. 
And because of all of the things that have happened around that, banks apparently were refusing to operate in parts of the country where, where cocoa was being grown. And, you know, folks were losing access to, to banking and to finances of any kind. And so it's just kind of crazy how we've talked a lot about, right, like supply chains and the fact that this pandemic has really impacted the people at the very top of the supply chain um, and with cocaine, right? Like it's not different at all. And something I hadn't thought about, but that I was reminded of, yeah, they're bearing sort of like the brunt of all of the risk that comes with things like, you know, a global pandemic. You've mentioned spraying of, you know, pesticides and, um, you know, whatnot over the, the crops. There are also times when like, because of government policies, this like crackdown on drugs, they go in and like destroy crops and they destroy just large swaths of farmland when that's actually not where all of the the actual like value, right? Like money value is necessarily being added, right? So if you really want to disrupt that supply chain, it's not going to be really through the, the farms. It's going to be elsewhere because sure, you can, I don't know, get rid of half of the crops. And let's say you raise the price from $200 a kilo to $400 a kilo. That's not going to make any real difference mm-hmm. um, at, the, at the end level, right? And so I just thought it was really fascinating, just the economics of it all and how just like this kind of like super sharp focus on how policy that on the surface may look like it's this like war on drugs, but it's really just a war on poor farmers. Another kind of a fascinating thing that I learned this week was um, I read this piece on NPR and it was about this book called Narconomics. Have you come across it at all, Graham? Um, I did. I was looking for books about this topic and that was like the book that everybody recommended, um, both for understanding it kind of on every level, like, wow. it, and I just love, I don't know, I mean, I feel like we accidentally end up talking like economists. <laughs> That's yeah. like some of the, some of the reviews that I've gotten so far from, from listeners, but it's also like a good way to look at things. And yeah, that's like what that book talks about is like, this is a business, like this is a whole market. (laughs) Right. And you know, the author, he likens cocaine cartels to Walmart. Like they are sometimes the only purchaser for a certain good. And so all of the leverage that they have over their suppliers who really only have Walmart to sell to. Um, and that's kind of how cocaine cartels are. Coca farmers, like who else are they going to sell to other than the cartels that are operating in their region, right? And so they can change the prices whenever they want. They really have all of the power. The author also likened the Zetas, which is, I guess, one of the largest drug cartels in Mexico, and how they operate like you know, a McDonald's um, and uh, in a franchising model. So apparently they like, they were able to expand so quickly through Mexico because they go to these like local regions and they find the local kind of like little gangs. And then they say, Hey, you can use our name. You know, we'll give you, we'll give you the swag. We'll give you like hats and t-shirts and you can go about doing your business like with our name for a share of your profits that you get from like shaking people down. And I just thought that was 
so interesting. And the book talks about how apparently there's like the same kind of problems that a franchise like McDonald's or Subway or, you know, whoever faces and that we've like learned in business school where it both gives the franchisees freedom because they know their localities best. And so they know best how to do how to run their business in the localities. But it also means that the franchisor, I guess, like the Zetas or the McDonald's, they also lose control. That sort of like parallel I thought was so interesting that it's really at the end of the day, it's it's a business. Yeah, I just, we, you know, we, we, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning about how can we talk about this in terms of the demand side, right? Like all we tend to talk about is like the supply side. It's grown in... South America. And then we talk still technically on the supply side about Mexican drug cartels and the process by which they get it into the US and then sort of questioning the Mexican government and like how much do they know or how much enforcement or how are they um, engaging with US DEA? Like, so that like we talk about that all the time, but we don't necessarily talk about here's all the demand in the US yeah. and it's not going anywhere. And right. I sort of wonder the way in which fair trade coffee, which, you know, it's like we practically should have just like talked about like coffee and drugs in this um, in this episode, yeah. but like the way in which fair trade coffee at least got like attention from American consumers to say like, oh, like there is an individual farmer who is growing these beans and I can like see that farmer on my package and I can like think about them. I do wonder what the potential power of if there even is one or if this economy functions different in sort of showing to cocaine users in the US, like here's where it's coming from. It's not even necessarily coming from the Mexican drug cartel. It's coming from this farmer in Colombia or Bolivia. And like you said, like during COVID, they are, you know, not able to sell their product and they're not able to get assistance. And like, not that I can imagine sort of going to cocaine users in the U.S. and saying like, would you like to pay more money or like support those like farmers? But maybe it's just like, it's like a transparency effort. (laughs) No, I could totally see that. Be a premium. I I could. I totally could. If you knew that, I can imagine (laughs) that it might be less about fair trade per se, but from even just like a safety perspective or, Mm. you know, whatever it is, right? Like, and I feel like it's all it's all connected. And if there was a way to not just deal with the problem through the criminal justice system, like if there was a better way to deal with it. And Mm -hmm. um, I think we'll talk more about that next week. Yeah. I just, it's like, it's also, it was also kind of like interesting to me because we're talking about cocaine from the perspective of like, the Mexican drug cartels and the growers even, but we were not actually talking about how it was actually manufactured for the first time by Merck, the founder of Merck Pharmaceuticals. He's the one who created the drug. Like have some responsibility, which impacts so many people, but it really just like started in the pharma industry. I wish there was a little bit more accountability around that or accountability around even the demand that was created or all of that. And we talk about this, I guess, in the context of opioids, but we don't really talk about it in in sort of these other contexts as well. 
Well, and it's also in the U.S. And I mean, maybe this is this is like a really good transition into talking about opioids. But like in the U.S., like there is an opioid crisis. Like the 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 use of opioids with so many different connections. Obviously, much much of it is prescription opioids, but has hurt so many Americans that there's now a response to it. Right. Whereas on the cocaine side, there's obviously there's like a history, right, of powdered cocaine versus crack cocaine and like how people using one or the other were sort of like treated or criminalized. Um, and so there's, there's that history and there's harm done there. But, but at this point, a lot of the harm in the system is really more in the supply chain. It's not necessarily like the users. Um, not, I mean, there, there is still, you know, there can still be bodily harm from taking those drugs, but like, we've just seen the negative impact from opioids in the U S like so clearly in the last couple of years. And so we are thinking a little bit more about what does it mean from the demand side here? I think digging into and doing this research, like the thing that really struck me is just how it's the colonialists and the capitalists who've caused these crises and it's left to the people to have to deal with the effects of it. And like that's just followed the history of heroin from the beginning, going back when it was just opium, right? Like going back to the poppy seed. So for example, the opium wars in the mid 19th century, right? You like hear about it, but we don't, I don't think we necessarily make the connection between like the opium wars of back then in China to, to necessarily like the opioid crisis in the US, but really it is all connected. So the poppy seed was first cultivated in Mesopotamia and then it sort of like made its way through South Asia and um, in the Middle East and the good old East India Company, they started taking it into China and to kind of like Eastern Asia. And then in the mid 19th century, because people were getting addicted to opium because of the deaths it was causing, the, the Qing dynasty banned it. And they like confiscated 2 million pounds of opium owned by British traders and imprisoned the traders for selling this now illegal drug. So what the British did is they sent over warships to get the opium back and to free the merchants so that they could continue selling opium to the Chinese. And then eventually, like Americans started getting in on the action too, including like the grandfather of President FDR and also the ancestors of um, Secretary John Kerry. Thought that was really interesting. Um, and so, thinking about this from like a global capitalistic yeah. perspective has been so interesting because it's just it's it's all connected. Where you're you know you're talking about. There's sure there's the supply side of it, and then there's also the demand side of it, and the demand that is created. And we like we talk about this with like Amazon, right? Like they didn't just create a product; they actually created the demand for their product. And so now our lives are forever changed because of this like demand that the company started when heroin was first invented. Um, and I guess like. At the turn of the century, it was being prescribed for quote unquote female problems. And so people who were addicted around that time were overwhelmingly women. I just found it so fascinating how demand is created and mm -hmm. demand is created, like what communities, what 
populations are being affected. And so that also then leads to the whole conversation around crack and cocaine and can delve more into that next week. Yeah. Um, when you were looking at the history, did you look at the sort of like the growth of heroin production out of Afghanistan beginning in the 70s and 80s up until today? Did you look at that? I can talk a little <laughs> bit about it until that point. It's like, it's just very interesting from a U.S. perspective, which why I was like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is really important. Yeah. Okay. So it becomes really lucrative at the turn of the century. And then Bayer starts like mass producing heroin as like a remedy for colds. And then all of a sudden in, um, in 1912, Bayer stops making it because people are getting addicted. And then in 1914, a, a narcotics tax act is passed and opiates and cocaine are taxed. And then in 1924, heroin is banned. But then comes World War II, and since it's banned on U.S. soil, U.S. persuades Mexico to farm poppies in the Sinaloa region. Even to this day, most of the heroin, right, I think something like 90% of the heroin um, in 2015 came from Mexico. Mexicans didn't just start producing heroin and then sending it to the U.S., it actually has its roots in the U.S. persuading the country to start farming poppies so that they could use it to treat soldiers who were in pain because of the war. So if the name Sinaloa means anything to you, it might be because it's, you know, the most powerful cartel in Juarez, apparently. And Sinaloa is still the region where one of the largest kind of poppy growing and heroin producing states in Mexico. That history has repercussions and meaning to this day. In the 1950s, the U.S. starts providing warlords in Southeast Asia, so Laos, um, Thailand, and Burma, the golden triangle of opium production with guns and production. And that was because they were afraid of communism because the U.S. during this Cold War period to fight communism and what that sort of stands for. Um, and I have like so many thoughts about this war on communism. Maybe we'll get there someday. But because of that, they were providing drug warlords with guns and protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at that point, like in the 50s, Southeast Asia becomes the, lar- the world's largest source of heroin. And then that title will eventually go to Afghanistan in, in the later years. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it really was like the same story, right? In the Cold War, the U.S., unclear if it was actually, you know, financing or providing um, weapons to groups that were directly involved with the opioid industry in Afghanistan, but they definitely tolerated it. So there's some really interesting articles that kind of trace the growth of the of like poppy farming and production in Afghanistan kind of along the lines of US involvement but you know during the 70s when the US was active in Afghanistan and you know funding and providing weapons to those groups is really when the farming started to grow and there's this really interesting graph on from a BBC article that traces it up to up to 2018 and there's this massive drop off in 2001 And it's literally because the Taliban had so tightly gained control in the country and outlawed 
the growing of poppies. Mm-hmm. So you see this like mm-hmm. almost to zero. And then obviously the U.S. comes in and all you see after that is growth. And at least this graph shows that peaking in 2017, over 300,000 hectares of poppies are being grown in Afghanistan, which in in the U.S. is equal to about 1,200 square miles. So Afghanistan has fully become like the number one provider of heroin globally. It's uh, it's like 80, somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of heroin globally is provided originally from these poppies in Afghanistan. And yeah, like it's kind of the same story as as coca like it's grown by farmers and there's a market for it and so it is you know profitable for them to to grow it and it's definitely regional afghanistan is an incredibly mountainous country and so the northern parts in the mountains it is more difficult to grow there there's also been a lot of droughts which has limited its ability to be grown so the the majority of it is kind of like the central like south region of the country but yeah i think that it like in a way it's a very similar story what what is interesting is that it can kind of be grown all over the world like there's definitely a band it flourishes in dry, warm climates, um, and so a lot of it is grown in those mountains across Central Asia and Turkey, all the way to Myanmar, which is where, which is kind of the other major country that's that's producing it at this point. You've got Myanmar, Afghanistan, and Colombia um, are are kind of like the three big producers. With like I said, Afghanistan is like at or near ninety percent, so definitely the majority. And so it it can be grown in more places, but it's obviously grown in areas where there is less strict governance. The way they described almost like today in Afghanistan, what it looks like, but it's, it's kind of like the idea that the opioid industry or like the growing of poppies is what is in control in Afghanistan, Mm. which I thought was like a really interesting way to think about it. That like that system is what has grown to provide quote, economic stability within the country as compared to a more traditional financial system with checks from from government and national banks or things like that. Like it really is growing poppies um, that's kind of running the country, which I thought was really interesting because like that's not like I knew that. I don't know, like that's I don't think people are talking about it much anymore. Um, Again, I think because in the U.S. so much of it is is prescription opioids is really the, the problem that we're looking at. Like we're looking at the overprescription, the overprescribing of opioids by doctors. Certainly a lot of people who are addicted at some point do move on to heroin, kind of similarly to the story you were telling about earlier in the century is that, you know, it was originally this drug that was being prescribed. And then you have all these people who are addicted. And if they no longer have a legal way to access the drug, then they're going to move to the illicit drug. That still happens. But I I was trying to think of like, how, how do we answer the question that Li Wei asked? Like, what is the most like ethical drug to purchase Um, or like supply chain or value chain? And, And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that next week. But I think that, yeah, I, I want to say that you can think about it like coffee. Like if you're going to participate in this system, just know that like 
it is a global system. There are suppliers, there are transporters, there are farmers at the beginning of it whose livelihoods depend on it. And that doesn't mean that like partaking is is benefiting those people, but it also is like, if you're on the other side and you want to have some impact on the whole system to say, this is, you know, net harm to humans, I would like to be part of addressing that, then just pay attention to what part of the system you're looking at it. Is it about addressing addiction? Is it about addressing how it's transported? Is it addressing how it's grown? It just sort of think about who are the people who are impacted. And then as we talked about in Colombia with growing coca, if there's going to be a transition, how are farmers supported into growing something else? And, you know, today in Afghanistan, I don't think that you're going to say like, I'm going to go help farmers in Afghanistan grow something else. There's like a lot of reasons why that's challenging. But I think it's good to know, like, there's a whole system working here. It's not just like, oh, people are growing it and they have a choice and it's bad and they should like grow something else. They're kind of, at this point, they're living in a country that is run by this drug and that is their economic security. When you said that really it's a source of their economic stability, that really hit home. So yeah, when I was thinking about that question of which have cleanest supply chains, I mean, as with any supply chain, it's going to be the one that's the shortest in that. And, you know, kind of like you mentioned, it's like if you grow marijuana on your porch or something, like that's going to be the cleanest supply chain. But I was thinking about this, you know, going back to heroin for a second and the opioid crisis that's a result of doctors overprescribing because pharmaceutical companies created a demand that actually, you know, there's now been crackdown on pill mills and there has been, you know, different formulations of oxy that make it less addictive. But as a result of all of that, right, like as you mentioned, now people who are already addicted, like they're going to be looking for other methods. And the thing about heroin is that it is like everything else, dependent on supply chains and and dependent on suppliers down to the poppies. And when, I don't know, the supply of poppies is disrupted, again, like that's not necessarily going to change it for the end user all that much, right? Like, because there's so many steps in between where it's cut with dangerous things. And I think the the kind of like the big one that we hear about or that we talk about is fentanyl. Mm-hmm. How now a lot of the heroin is being cut with fentanyl, which is, it's, it's like a, it's basically a synthetic form of an opioid that is so strong. It's like up to 50 times as strong as heroin. That just like the teeniest, tiniest bit can be, it can be deadly. And so as things get outlawed and as there's like, scrutiny on it. It's the the users and it's like the non kind of corporate actors that are being the most affected. So Switzerland has legalized heroin and it's not the kind of legalization like marijuana in certain states in the US, but it's now done in a way where the supply is managed by the government. Doctors have to prescribe heroin, but if you get a prescription because you are addicted, then you can get it for free. And so what it's ended up doing is then going back to like the supply chain and everyone within the supply chain, the people who are the heaviest heroin users tend to be dealers because when they get addicted and they can't afford their habit, they have to deal on the side. So what that ends up doing is then creating new demand because they have to 
find new people to sell heroin to. Um, and so what this, like what I guess legalizing um, heroin in Switzerland has done is actually not only make it safer for current users, they also saw the number of new users drop significantly. Talking about the most ethical or cleanest supply chains, I'm thinking it's something where it isn't created and fueled by purely like capitalistic or political reasons or either fueling demand for drugs or even shutting them down. And this war on drugs and like killing poppy fields or, you know, stuff like that. When the chains aren't run by these kind of misguided reasons, I, I think is when when supply chains can be the cleanest. Yeah, such a such a good discussion. And I think that next week when we talk a little bit more about like, what does it mean to be a consumer in the U.S. Um, and we'll we'll sort of dig into marijuana, all types of cannabinoids. Um, I think will be a really good discussion about that because as as it's becoming legal in more and more states, there's just like a lot more things to talk about. With legality comes or should come transparency around pricing and what's in it and where it comes from. Um, and I think that there's a lot of interesting things to talk about there as well. So yeah, looking forward. To, to continuing this conversation next week. Thank you for listening to Effing Ethical. Check us out on Instagram at F-I-N-G Ethical and on our website at songandsarah.com. We'd love to hear from you. What industries or systems do you have questions about? How are you making ethical decisions in everyday life? 2020 is hard and we would love to hear about how it's going for you. Thanks.